from John chapter 8. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered round him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, of, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left and with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let us pray. God, thank you for this text. Heavenly Father, speak to us now. Draw us deeper into your heart. Speak to us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Guide us again. I pray these words of mine wouldn't be my words, but they'd be your words. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pure and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We love you and praise you. Amen. Well, when I first lived in Seattle in 1997, I lived in a house owned by a Christian caterer in Seattle who let a bunch of us stay there, uh, people who were interns at University Press and young adult guys, and um, got to know a bunch of wonderful brothers during that time. And during one season there, I was there for about five and a half years, I became kind of like the house dad after a while. We had some SBU guys, some Seattle Pacific University guys who were there. And right after I was examined by Seattle Presbytery to be ordained as a Presbyterian minister, I had my big exam in front of Presbytery and it was, it went great and I was so praising God for that. And I came home and none of the guys were home, which wasn't, wasn't totally unusual, but it was interesting. And I got this phone call. And it was from the dad of one of the guys. And one of the guys, I'll, I'll call him Joe. I won't use their real names. But so Joe's dad calls me. I pick up and I go, hi. He goes, Matthew, where's Joe? I said, I don't know. Well, where is Joe? And Joe's dad says, Joe's in jail. I'm like, well, okay. Well, apparently... At least it was two, maybe three of my housemates. I can't remember. It was at least two. It was 20 years ago. So it was at least two of them. They had decided to do a B&E. You ever hear of B&E? Breaking and entering. Breaking and entering. They had decided to do a B&E in, a, in an abandoned school on Magnolia. And unbeknownst to them, it was wired, I guess. Wired for, you know, burglars or prowlers. And they tripped the alarm. Or probably, you know, infrared or something. And lo and behold, Seattle's finest rolled up. And they elected not to run, which was smart. And um, they got arrested. 
and they were taken to, I think it was King County, full-on King County lockup. So my first act as a, a, a guy cleared for ordination in the Presbyterian Church USA was to go and bail out my housemates from uh, the King County lockup. I called my uh, friend Jim, who was the money guy, and he owned the catering company. I Tim, we got a situation. Jim knew, you know, Jim dealt with young adult guys all the time. So he was like, okay, I'll be, I'll be right there. You know, I think he wrote a check and we got him out. And when they got home, boy, them boys were shook. I mean, they were a little bit freaked out by what they'd been through, you know? And they, uh, sat in the kitchen and I think they had like a little, like, little communion service in the kitchen <laughs> coming back to the, to the, to home. But they got caught and it was an honor for me to go get them as my first act as a newly cleared for ordination pastor in making. She got caught. We all get caught, right? She got caught in adultery, and our text makes this clear. By the way, you may notice in this text in your Bibles, particularly if you have study Bibles, that they will tell you that this text is not included in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. Scholar M.C. Tenney tells us that the text is absent, this story is absent from most of the oldest copies of the Gospel pre-6th century and from the works of the earliest commentators. But as Dr. Tenney points out, to say that this didn't belong in the gospel is not identical with rejecting it. It doesn't mean we're rejecting it out and out as unhistorical. It's coherent. The spirit of it fits very well with what we see in the life of Jesus. And so it shows signs of being preserved well from a very early time. Based on information we have now, Dr. Tenney said this story was probably not part of the original text, but it's still likely historical. Bruce Metzger, who's one of the great scholars of the New Testament, he used to walk around Princeton, it was 80s, and go to the library there when I was there. He says, look, this account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. It it's, looks very true, probably a piece of oral tradition circulating in the early church, and that matters. Dale Bruner, uh, the scholar from Whitworth, retired from Whitworth, he has an interesting theory. He says, you know, Augustine believed, St. Augustine, one of the early church leaders in the third, fourth century, he believed something interesting. He theorized that this story may have been taken out of many early manuscripts by some leader or copyist in the early church who mistakenly, in Augustine's mind, feared that the story made adultery into a minor offense. So it might be that this was being policed out by some early copyist in the church or something. And uh, Dr. Bruner says this is a good explanation for why this is absent. I think it, it may well be too. Calvin, John Calvin, the great Geneva theologian of the Reformation said... Look, there's some historical issues here, but he said it was still worthy. It wasn't unworthy of the apostolic spirit. So there's good reason to, to take this story seriously. It has all the marks of something we can, we can do that with. And, you know, there's good reason why the woman in the story was in trouble. The law of Leviticus was clear. Leviticus 20, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress should be put to death. That's Leviticus 20. 
And Deuteronomy says, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, you shall take both of them to the gate of the town and stone them to death. So strictly speaking, these religious officials weren't wrong. They had reason to want to raise these questions. But look, if their motive is truly accountability here, then why wasn't the guy included here? If they were really concerned about righteousness, the law prescribes that both people are in deep trouble. So where's the guy here? John is clear. This is not about righteousness. This is about theater manipulating a situation to get after Jesus. The text says the teachers of the law and Pharisees made her stand before the group. And in asking Jesus' take on what the law says, John makes clear, quote, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. It's an attempt at a gotcha moment because if Jesus said, okay, go ahead and execute them, then that runs afoul of Roman law, which shouldn't allow that to happen. If he says, no, don't, then that runs afoul of the law of Moses. So they're trying to trap him. Well, he doesn't go with their parameters. He will not play by their rules. He never denies her guilt, but he pushes them to consider theirs. Jesus bent down and started right on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and rode on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman we're not told what the Lord was writing. There, I saw one theory one time that maybe he was writing out their sins, <laughs> writing their sins on the ground. That's an interesting idea. I, we don't have any proof of that. It's just speculative, but it's interesting. Whatever precisely is going on in what he's doing, it culminates in perhaps one of the most famous sayings in Jesus' whole ministry. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. He doesn't minimize her sin. He maximizes the sin of everybody. And in response to that, these guys have nothing to say. They can only walk away. This is how our Lord responded when she got caught. We all get caught. Where are you caught? Where are you exposed? St. Paul says in Romans 3, for all have sinned. That is inclusive. The Bible is an inclusive book. You can tell your friends that. It's inclusive in that it says everyone's a sinner. Everyone's in the same boat. We're all caught. We all need help. We're all in a jam we can't get out of. Compare your life to Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and everyone's life falls short. When my housemates were in that situation back in the year 2000, and I had to go and bail them out at the behest of Joe's father, let me tell you, it sure gave me a sense of mission at the time. Extend this moment out for every person who's ever lived and you get a sense of God's mission. Our God doesn't just come to bail us out though. He's not just a bailer outer. Our God comes to take the penalty for our sins on himself. 
I remember, like I said, after my housemates were home and they sat kind of teary-eyed in the kitchen, you know, after being in the prison for a while. I don't know if they stayed the night or they were there. They were there a while. With time, they were able to laugh about it. But at first, the jail time had left them shaken. Life has a way of doing that, doesn't it? But now they were home. They were home. They were in the kitchen. They were okay. They were out of their prison clothes. They were back in their own clothes. But look, God doesn't just settle for that. God doesn't just drop us off at our old address and throw on our old clothes. When God rescues us, he clothes us in Jesus. Galatians 3.27, we are clothed in Christ. He gives you new clothes and a new home. We reside now permanently within the embrace of the Father and the Son in the Spirit. Jesus will pray later in John, one of my favorite texts, John 17, as I am in you and you are in me, may they be in us. We now reside in God's intra-Trinitarian hug, the hug of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That is where now we live. We're drawn into the hug of the Trinity, which then is actually also a missions base as we live outwardly to pull others in. We're pulling other people. Come here. You come here. Come here. We pull them in, even and especially those who are caught, who are in a gotcha moment, whatever way it happened. Whatever has you caught, and we're all still caught, I'm sure, right? Who isn't? Jesus is sent, not really to bail us out, but to save us in every way by pulling us into his embrace with the Father and the Spirit. Even as we're caught, we're caught up in a greater reality. God doesn't just send bail money. God doesn't just send even a great lawyer. The judge himself comes in Jesus Christ. The judge is the savior. And we're not condemned, we're loved. Sin is not condoned either. You know, in God's embrace, we face who we are. Dr. Bruner points this out. He says, it should also be noticed that Jesus engages the woman as a responsible, or you could say response-able, right? Human being, that good, Dr. Bruner, I like how he puts that. A response-able human being, he asks her the questions he asks her. And he does that before he gives her his own solemn verdict and sentence, which suggests a kind of trial is still in progress. He is the judge, after all. He takes her and her sin at least that seriously. He did not acquit her without question. We can learn something with Jesus in his way with people. When we're in the embrace, we face ourselves. We see ourselves with him with us, right? Being with him means exposure. And that's a process we're all in. One of the ways to conceive of of Christian life in Christ together, in small groups, in community, in relationship, is a growing exposure where we more and more show ourselves and our struggles. He saw this woman's struggles. One of the dangers I see with this text, maybe you've noticed, People can throw this text out like, 
let he who is without sin cast the first stone, right? But then they miss the part where he says to her, go and leave your life of sin. So the connection is not conditioned upon her being sinless, but the connection calls her to a different life. So you got to hold those two together, right? God's embrace as we are embraced in the union of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we will face growingly in a process, not all at once because we couldn't handle it. <laughs> We'd go, if we saw all the stuff we have to work on. <laughs> but we, day by day by day by day, we structure in our lives encounters with God and God's people in this embrace. And we see more and more areas that we're caught, we need to work on. And that never ends this side of the second coming. And that's what church life is together. It's being together in that embrace and being seen, really seen, even in our caughtness, exposed, vulnerable. I'm sure those guys, when I went to get them, when that got out, when they were at the house, they felt so vulnerable. And yet they were welcomed and loved and cared for and moved through. We are not condemned, but neither are our sins condoned. To be loved there, as Jesus loved this woman here, to be loved in our caughtness is to hear the truth about ourselves and the way that sits within the greater truth of God and who God is for us and with us and surrounding us. Go knowing you are embraced where you are that whatever thing you're caught in, you're caught up in God's embrace, which is bigger. And as you live in his embrace, he will lead you to face and meet a face where we need to grow and he'll walk with us every step of the way as we do that. And as you do that, you invite others in. Come in, come into the embrace. Isn't that a neat way to think of evangelism? To come and invite people into the embrace of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Come, come and be, come and see. Come and experience this love of God. As we are embraced and as we face things, we invite others to do the same thing too. May it be so for you and for me in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. You paid it all, Lord. And... Yet you are the judge, the judge who's also the savior. And in you and your embrace, we see ourselves and our need, our need for forgiveness, our need for a new permanent home. You provide that and change us and work in us and change us and work in us and change us. Even as we are who you made us to be, you also grow us to be more and more like you. Holy Spirit, praise you for creating the life of Christ in us. Feed us now as we come before your table, remembering people all over the world, people in the Ukraine, people in Florida, people in the maritime provinces recovering from Ian and Fiona, people in Indonesia and the terrible events in the soccer match yesterday, our four deployed families hurting and waiting for diagnoses or surgeries or pain of lost loved ones be with all these your dear ones bless our reflections of you to the world that we would be invitations into your embrace and all that we do in Christ's name, 
Amen.